Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 56, the book of Acts, chapters 27 and 28. Today we arrive at the final chapter of the book of Acts. Now, although it seems like the entire book has been mostly about Paul, the first half of Acts actually focused mostly on Peter and the Yeshua movement in the Holy Land. And when the focus finally does shift to Paul, the location also shifts to the foreign lands of the Roman Empire where well more than 90% of Jews lived in New Testament times. Now before we finish up chapter 27 and then read chapter 28, I want to point out something that probably has become clear to you. It is that while Paul is usually called the Apostle to the Gentiles, that is only so in the broadest sense. Because from the beginning to the end of Acts, in all of Paul's epistles, he is also always ministering to Jews. In fact, whenever he wanders into a new town or city, his first stop is where? A Jewish synagogue. Always. I think a better, a more properly descriptive title for Paul would be the Apostle to the Diaspora. as his main dealings were with Jews. And let us start to remember that when Paul did go to Gentiles, it was not with the idea of starting a separate religion for Gentiles that early on took the name Christianity. But rather, it was an offer for Gentiles to join with Jews in their covenants with God. Further, when we see Paul take the message to Gentiles, we must understand that even though in some ways it was a new work of the Lord, on the other hand, it's not as though this sort of thing hadn't been already happening. Jews had been proselytizing Gentiles for centuries and with some success. I mean, we often read about the many God-fearers in the book of Acts and also hear about some of their personal stories God-fearing Gentiles such as the eunuch from Ethiopia Cornelius, the Roman centurion now sadly <clears throat> the message from Acts was distorted by most of the early church fathers who were anti-Semitic to one degree or another and so the message was twisted to be one of the Jews rejecting Yeshua while the Gentiles accepted him. Haven't we heard that since you were in Sunday school? Now this is scripturally and historically just flat incorrect. It's not true. We read of tens of thousands of Jews accepting Yeshua in Jerusalem alone. In fact, all of the early church were Jews. 
Only later do we find Gentiles joining in. And if the standard for claiming that the Jews as a people rejected the Messiah is that not 100% of all Jews accepted him, well, then so have the Gentiles rejected Christ because certainly not 100% of Gentiles have accepted him then or now. I mean, the latest studies of the breakdown of adherence to the major, various major religions of the world conducted by the, the Pew Report occurred in 2010. They say that 33% of the world's population claims Christianity and that it represents the largest single religion of the 21st century and that's wonderful. But it also means that more than double that number 67% of Gentiles have not accepted Christ, doesn't it? Well, since of the 7 billion people living on this planet, only about 15 million are Jews, then 99.9% of all people living today on this planet are Gentiles. And since 7 out of every 10 people alive today reject Christ, how can we honestly look at ourselves in the mirror and say, oh, the Jews reject Christ, but the Gentiles accept Him? You see how silly that is? It's just dishonest. And the numbers of those Gentiles who accepted Christ, as opposed to those who rejected Him, were vastly smaller in the early centuries A.D., so when read honestly and thoroughly, the book of Acts refutes some commonly held Christian doctrines that elevate Gentiles and denigrate Jews in God's eyes. So as we pick up our story today of the shipwreck, Paul and the 276 passengers are trapped on board the ship and it is anchored by the stern so the bow points towards the shoreline. The storm is still raging on. The lifeboat was intentionally scuttled to keep the ship's crew from abandoning ship and leaving the passengers to fend for themselves. So the only way anybody's going to survive is that they will either swim to shore or use some of the debris of the ship that's now coming apart as their life preservers. But any attempt to leave the ship is going to have to wait until morning when they can see exactly where they've anchored how far from land they might be. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 31 and read to the end. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 1399. Acts 27 starting at verse well, we'll start at verse 30. <clears throat> at this point, the crew made an attempt to abandon ship. They lowered the lifeboat into the sea, pretending that they were about to let out some anchors from the bow. Now, Shaul said to the officer and the soldiers, unless these men remain aboard the ship, you yourselves can't be saved. 
Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the lifeboat and let it go. Just before daybreak, Shaul urged them all to eat, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have been in suspense, going hungry, eating nothing. Therefore, I advise you to take some food. You need it for your own survival. For not one of you will lose so much as a hair from his head. And when he said this, he took bread, said the Berachah to God in front of everyone, broke it and began to eat. And with courage restored, they all ate some food themselves. Now altogether, there were 276 of us on board this ship. And after they had eaten all they wanted, they lightened the ship by dumping the grain into the sea. Well, when day broke, they didn't recognize the land, but they did notice a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they cut away the anchors, left them in the sea, and at the same time, they loosed the ropes that held the rudders up out of the water. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they encountered a place where two currents meet and that ran the vessel aground on the sandbar there. The bow stuck. It would not move. While the pounding of the surf began to break up the stern. At this point, the soldiers thought was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim off and escape. But the officer, wanting to save Shaul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to throw themselves overboard first and head for shore. The rest to use planks or whatever they could find from the ship. Thus it was that everyone reached land safely. This is a great story. I love chapter 27. In verse 33, just before the sun was coming up, Shaul urged everyone to eat. Now clearly, even though a few verses earlier, Paul had urged urged the same thing, few must have been able to take in food. It's not as though everyone would have had the same opportunity to eat. Each person on this ship was responsible for bringing and preparing his or her own food. No doubt, some were just too seasick or just too nervous to even think about eating. So the ever-practical Paul was merely being pragmatic. Whatever lay ahead in the next crucial hour or two was going to take considerable physical exertion. People needed to eat to gain some energy and strength. He reminds them that he knows from a divine appearance that everyone's going to survive. So there's no need to be so anxious from fear that they can't even eat. Now likely, the ship was a little more stable at this moment because it had run aground. So some minimal level of food preparation was more doable. Then we learned that Paul broke bread, said the blessing, and everyone ate. Well, when hearing a sermon or reading a commentary on this passage, you can very quickly tell whether the teacher or the pastor has any familiarity with Jewish culture, history, or Judaism by their conclusions as to what's happening here. Here's an example of what I mean by this. F.F. Bruce, who is a classic doctrinalist, in his commentary on this passage says this, There is a cluster of words and phrases here, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, which are familiar in the Eucharistic setting, communion. This supports the view of many commentators that the meal here was a Eucharistic meal. 
communion. In other words, F.F. Bruce and many other mainstream Gentile New Testament commentators insist that here we have a record of in the midst of all this, Paul is performing communion. This is an example of someone who has chosen to inject their long-held Western Gentile Christian doctrines and personal beliefs over what any of this actually denoted in Jewish society of that day, and frankly to this very day. Jews began most every meal with the barakah, a blessing. The procedure we read of here, taking the bread and breaking it and saying a prayer and passing it around, was normal and customary. Almost every eating situation for Jews. It had absolutely nothing to do with the church-created sacrament of communion. Now most, or at least many, of the passengers of this vessel were probably Jews. If Paul hadn't done it this way, he would have been seen as one who doesn't follow Jewish customs. It was imperative that he do it this way. One of the reasons that the institutional church wants this to be communion is because Paul has supposedly, by now, given up all of his Jewish ways and his Gentile Jewish identity and become a, a Christian, which by definition means the worshippers of Gentile. To find Paul leading the ship's passengers in a standard Jewish preamble to a meal, breaking bread, saying a, a blessing, a bercha, puts a substantial dent in that claim. So, using a little grain that the ship was carrying in order to have something to eat, what was left, almost all of the grain, was then thrown into the sea, we're told, to lighten the waterlogged ship that was now sitting heavy in the water. They're trying to keep it afloat a little bit longer. I mean, the grain was now by now ruined by the salt water anyway. They didn't know where they were. But they did see a nearby bay with a sandy beach. Now on a drama that is just made for the big screen, the moment of decision arrives. The captain, using all his skills, was going to try to head this wounded ship towards the sandy beach and shallower water. They had no further use for their anchors. Besides, it was a foregone conclusion that the ship itself would not survive. So they cut the anchor lines in order to allow the wind and the waves to do their job and push them, hopefully, towards the shore and safety. But they still needed to be able to steer or the rocks surrounding the bay would surely have just cracked that hull open like an egg. The twin rudders had been lifted up held securely out of the water during the storm so that they didn't break off. So the ropes holding them were also cut. This allowed the rudders to fall back down into the water for the last time in that ship's life. Then to provide some forward movement for steering, they put up the smaller foresail. That's the sail at the, the front of the ship. And then they tried to aim it all towards the beach. 
They didn't make it. (laughs) They didn't make it. They hit a spot where the waters swirled and tumbled so chaotically that the rudders were just useless. So there they ran aground on a sandbar some distance from the shore. This means that drowning still remained a distinct possibility. Worse, they were still in deep enough waters that the storm waves pounded relentlessly at the flat stern of the hard-grounded ship and it was just tearing that already battered vessel to pieces. So quick action was needed. At this point, it was every man for himself. The ship was virtually disintegrating under their feet. A desperate leap into the swirling water was their only hope. But Julius's soldiers knew that the several prisoners on board would now have the perfect opportunity to escape during all this chaos. And there wouldn't even be any way to know for sure whether they'd drowned. Maybe their corpses floated away. Or maybe they'd managed to survive and they fled. So the soldiers determined to kill all the prisoners. Now the reason was that it was standard Roman policy that the soldier responsible for allowing a prisoner to escape on his watch would bear the punishment that prisoner would have received if convicted. Most who appealed to Caesar were convicted of capital crimes and they were hoping to have their cases overturned. But Julius didn't want Paul to be killed. And at the same time, couldn't show particular favoritism, so he ordered his troops not to kill the prisoners, thus taking the responsibility for any who might escape unto himself. In fact, Julius ordered everyone, prisoners included, who could swim to just jump in, try to make their way to shore as best they could, those who could not swim to jump in and hang on to debris of this rapidly disintegrating vessel. And as the angelic messenger to Shaul had promised, all 276 souls aboard made it alive to the welcoming beach. Why did Julius not do the thing that almost any Roman soldier would have done under the circumstances and kill his prisoners? We've been told all throughout this harrowing sea tale that he had some kind of undefined affinity towards Paul. But why would he risk his life for the other prisoners? can only be that not only was he a decent man who valued life, but the Lord had somehow affected him to be so selfless, even if it was not, so far as we know, an effect that led to his salvation. Now there's a lesson here. The Lord deals not only with his followers, but also those who oppose him. We should never think that the Lord is not working in the lives of even his enemies when the enemy has no idea of it. And as we watch the boiling waters of 
this restless, dying world all around us. Waters that we are immersed into just as much as our unbelieving friends are. Let us always remember that God will use outsiders to bring judgment upon His own. Say that again. God will use outsiders to bring judgment upon His own, but also, at times, He will use outsiders to comfort and even save His own. It is the mystery of God, the mercy of God, and the will of God to do so. Well, let's move on to the final chapter of the book of Acts. Open your Bibles again. Open it now to Acts chapter 28, still on page 1399. We're going to read the entire chapter. Acts chapter 28. After our escape, we learned that the island was called Malta. Its people showed extraordinary kindness. It was cold. It had started to rain, so they lit a bonfire. They welcomed us all. Now, Shaul had gathered a bundle of sticks and was adding them to the fire when a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. The islanders saw the creature hanging from Shaul's hand and said to one another, This man must be a murderer. Even though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook the snake off into the fire, suffered no harm. They waited, expecting him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing that nothing amiss was happening to him, they reversed their opinion and said he must be a god. Now nearby were lands belonging to the governor of the island, whose name was Publius. He received us in a friendly manner. He put us up for three days. Now it so happened that Publius's father was lying in bed sick with fever attacks and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and placed his hands on him and healed him. And after this happened, the rest of those on the island who had ailments came and were healed. They heaped honors on us. And when the time came for us to sail, they provided the supplies we needed. After three months, we sailed away on a ship from Alexandria called Twin Gods, which had passed the winter at the island. We landed at Syracuse and stayed three days, and from there we arrived in uh, Regium by tacking. But after one day, a south wind sprang up, so we made it to uh, Puteoli the second day. There we found brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we went on towards Rome. The brothers there had heard about us, came as far as uh, as Appian Market and three inns to meet us. And when Shaul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we arrived at Rome, the officer allowed Shaul to stay by himself, although guarded by a soldier. After three days, Paul called a meeting of the local Jewish leaders. And when they gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against either our people or against the traditions of our fathers... I was made a prisoner in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me. They were ready to release me because I had done nothing to justify a death sentence. But when the Judean, uh, Judeans objected, I was forced to appeal to the emperor. Not that I had any charge to make against my own people. This is why I have asked to see you and speak with you, for it is because of the hope of Israel that I have this chain around me. And they said to him, 
Well, we've not received any letters about you from Judah, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we do think it would be appropriate to hear your views from you, yourself. For we all, for all we know about this sect is that people everywhere speak against it. So they arranged a day with him. They came to his quarters in large numbers, and from morning until evening he explained the matter to them, giving them a thorough witness about the kingdom of God and making use of both the Torah of Moshe and the prophets to persuade them about Yeshua. Now some were convinced by what he said, but uh, while others refused to believe. So they left, disagreeing among themselves after Shaul had made one final statement. The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, spoke well in saying to your fathers through Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but never understand. You will keep on seeing, but never perceive. Because the heart of this people has grown thick. With their ears they barely hear. Their eyes they've closed for fear that they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and do teshuva, repent, so that, they could, so that I could heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the goyim, to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Paul remained two whole years in a place he rented for himself. He continued receiving all who came to see him, openly and without hindrance, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Well, it turns out that the island they shipwrecked upon was Malta. Now, so far as we know, because the term we continues to be used, Luke was eyewitness and fellow victim. So everything we read is accurate, assuming the Greek manuscripts handed down to us are accurate. Now in reality, they weren't as far off course as they had feared. Malta was a regular stop on the Alexandria to Rome route. However, the harbor and port was on the opposite side of the island from where they were wrecked. So no doubt the captain and ship's owner didn't recognize the island landscape from their current vantage point. Well, Malta lies about 60 miles south of Sicily. And verse 2 in most English Bibles politely calls the people of this island natives. That's not what the Greek says. The term Greek is barbaros. It means barbarians. Barbarian was a term that inherently meant people who didn't speak Greek. But it also characterized the people who were less civilized according to the Roman standards. It's not unlike the English use of the word savages that at one time was used to describe Native Americans, American Indians. That is, the term denotes people who are primitive or even beastly in the eyes of those who are using the term. And when we understand that, then we understand why so much attention is paid by Luke as to how kind these barbarians were. Unexpectedly kind. The passengers, passengers and crew had every right 
to expect people who would show up and might take advantage of them in their helpless situation. Pirates and those who pillaged shipwrecks infested the Mediterranean at this time. Well, it was cold. I mean, it was early winter, after all. It was rainy, and the physically and emotionally drained castaways sat shivering in the wind. But these barbarians immediately came to their aid, and they started a fire to warm them. Now, Paul, never one to sit in the background, went out to gather more wood for the fires. Now, there were likely a few fires. I mean, after all, there was 276 people to warm. But when Paul was picking up sticks, one of the sticks was apparently a snake made inanimate by the cold weather, as snakes that are cold-blooded creatures are prone to do. And as Paul carried that bundle closer to the fire and this snake's body temperature started to rise, it awoke and it quickly clamped on to Paul's hand and it wouldn't let go. The passage says the snake was a viper, meaning it was poisonous. And the superstitious superstitious natives saw what happened and essentially just sat back to watch how Paul would respond to it all. So Paul shook off the snake into the fire and then everybody waited for Paul to be affected by the venom. The islanders knew by now Paul was a prisoner. So they naturally figured that his being bitten by a snake was justice decided by fate for some crime he'd committed. He had somehow escaped the shipwreck unharmed but now the gods weren't about to let him off the hook for some evil deed he had done so they arranged for him to die by snake bite. But Paul disappointed him. Luke, the doctor, says that there was no reaction whatsoever. Now who gets bitten by a poisonous snake and is completely unaffected? Therefore the people waiting for Paul to keel over now decide the opposite. He's not only not being punished by the gods, he must be a god. People, huh? I want to briefly comment that it's not unusual at this point for a Bible commentator or perhaps a pastor to begin to explain the roles of serpents in the Bible. To start to draw comparisons, for example, with the story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden or or the fiery serpent in the wilderness during the exodus from Egypt that looking upon it healed snake bites. I personally find these comparisons to be invalid across the board. About the only theological message that I can see in our story concerning the snake is that Paul was supernaturally protected by God. And that God can heal or even prevent injury as he wills it. Luke recorded an incident that was quite real. And no doubt he was fascinated by the result, even if he had no explanation as to why things went the way they did. My simple view is that Paul still had not yet arrived to Rome, the destination God had in mind for him. So it just wasn't Paul's time to die yet. So he didn't. Well, Malta is only about 120 square miles in size and therefore 
did have sufficient land to house some few number of estates. A fellow named Publius owned one of those estates, and he was also the governor of the island, and his land apparently was not far from the shipwreck. And when he heard of the disaster, he graciously offered hospitality to the victims. Now Luke makes it clear that Publius treated everyone in a friendly fashion and put them up for three days. However, his father was ill. He was in bed with a severe gastric ailment and dysentery. He also had a fever, which means he had an infection. Now these sorts of ailments rarely sorted themselves out in ancient times rather usually ending in a very painful death. Paul heard of it. He went to Publius's father, laid hands on him, and he was healed. Word spread rapidly. And so all the island people came in droves to have their ailments healed. Well, at this time in history, generally all people saw illness in a spiritual context. They thought that demon possession caused illness. They also thought that gods routinely laid diseases on people to punish them. Now think for a moment about what we learned from Leviticus concerning the skin disease called Sarat. Most English Bibles erroneously call it leprosy. Sarat was not a specific skin disease but rather manifested itself in a number of ways. In modern medical terms, we read of a range of serious skin diseases, but the Bible uses the term Zerat for them all. The important point is that the scriptures confirm that Zerat is caused spiritually, supernaturally by God. It is usually in response to an unclean soul. So it isn't like folks in Bible times, Jews or pagans, were entirely wrong about the source of all disease. Even doctors like Luke saw it that way. However, they had training in certain potions and medications that could soothe and reduce pain and discomfort. Doctors also were expert at treating wounds, something that wasn't usually connected to the spiritual world. The concept of germs and bacteria creating disease was centuries away. So with no other explanation at hand for illness that usually appeared out of nowhere, only the spiritual was left. Thus holy men were often seen as physicians, usually involved healing prayer. It was also common for these holy men to lay hands on a patient. And that is exactly what we see Paul doing here. Holy men didn't grow on trees. And verifiable miraculous healings were even rarer. So it's no wonder that when Publius's father quickly recovered from what was usually fatal, word spread like wildfire. Luke simply says this about that and they were all healed. Paul spent his time healing by the power of the Lord. And the so-called barbarians were so grateful that when the time came for Paul and his fellow passengers to sail away, they gave them all the supplies they needed.
Now verse 11 explains that after three months on the island, the shipwrecked group boarded an Alexandrian ship and set sail. Now it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this was, but likely it was around February because that's when the west winds begin to blow again. This Alexandrian ship would have wintered in harbor on Malta. The ship was called Twin Gods, or in other English version, merely Twins. What this is referring to is the ship's figurehead that was customarily on the bow of, of large sailing vessels. They were the twin sons of the god Zeus, called Castor and Pollux. And these twin gods were believed to be the gods of navigation and safe travel, and their constellation was Gemini. The ship's destination then was Syracuse, which lay on the southeast coast of Sicily. It was a relatively short sail, about 60 miles, about a day. And we're told that they stayed in port there for three days, likely to onload and offload cargo. And Luke continues with his detailed itinerary by telling us that from Syracuse they then went to Regium, but they had to tack. In other words, they had a zigzag to get there. So that took a little longer. They were essentially island hopping. So they picked up a nice southerly wind and then they sailed on to Puteoli. Now Puteoli is located on the northern shore of the Bay of Naples. Now this was a major port because it was on the mainland of Italy. Well, Now the ship's cargo, often grain, could be carried overland in wagons distributed in towns and villages. Paul's time on a ship was finally over. He had been traveling now for at least four months. Well, Puteoli had a substantial Jewish colony. So it's not surprising that there we'd also find believing Jews. However, we need to notice how far and wide trust in Yeshua had already spread And it was certainly not Paul that had spread it to Italy. Many other evangelists were at work and doing God's will of spreading the gospel of Yeshua. We just never read about them in the Bible or do we know who they were. When Paul met the believers, they offered to keep him for a week. Now I must say that as nice as all this sounds, one cannot help but wonder how Paul, a prisoner, was able to find other believers and even decide to stay with them. I mean, probably it was Luke or or some of his other traveling companions who actually did the scouting and found the believers. There is no chance that Paul was free enough to not be supervised by a Roman soldier. But likely it was only one soldier because a trust had been built. Nonetheless, the believers had to have accepted the Roman soldier to accompany Paul. Very likely, the soldier was chained to him most of the time. But let's be clear. In the Roman Empire in this era, soldiers could be billeted wherever the military felt it expedient to put them. And many times it was in people's homes. So folks, including Jews, were used to having, pardon me, Roman soldiers in their midst, even staying in their homes. It seems that the farther away from 
the Holy Land that a Jew resided, the more tolerant they were of the Gentile ways. And the Gentiles were more at ease with the Jews. Notice also that it was not just Paul who was invited to stay with the brethren. Verse 15 clearly says, us. Plural, us. So Luke and others traveling with Paul, and at least one Roman soldier, all went to stay with these local believing Jews. Just a few miles from Puteoli was the Appian Way, one of the most marvelous Roman roadways that helped to interconnect Italy. It was the Appian Way that the group traveled to get to Rome. This was not a super highway, however, nor was it one of the better Roman highways. It was described as being rough and flinty and making significant demands upon travelers. So with little fanfare, we find Paul just arrive in Rome. And there he was allowed to rent a place so he could stay by himself, but with his personal Roman guard as a housemate, of course. Now, no doubt, this decision to allow Paul this privilege was made by the local judicial authority, and the decision seems to indicate a belief that Paul's case will likely be, dismiss, be dismissed, and Paul is hes of no threat to flee. Julius's commission to bring Paul and presumably other prisoners as well to Rome was completed, so now we hear no more of Julius. However, interestingly, this is also the end of what's called the we passages. So it seems that Luke is no longer accompanying Paul from here forward. Well, only three days after establishing himself in his flat in Rome, Paul begins to contact the local Jewish leadership of what was a substantial Jewish community in Rome. These would have been mostly traditional Jews, not Messianics. Historians estimate that at this time there was a Jewish community of between 40 and 50,000 in Rome. Now I think it's interesting and valuable for serious Bible students to get a good picture of the Jewish community in Rome in New Testament times. Too much. We assumed that the Romans were vicious and that they hated the Jews and the Jews lived under terrible Roman persecution and so forth. But the evidence, biblical and otherwise, says the opposite. We need to take this reality into account, especially when we think about the book of Revelation and its several references to Rome. So indulge me, please, because I'm going to read to you a rather long excerpt from Philo that noted Jewish philosopher and historian about his first-hand perception of the Jewish community in Rome. Listen to this. How then did Augustus Caesar show his approval? He was aware that the great section of Rome on the other side of the Tiber River is occupied and inhabited by Jews, most of whom were Roman citizens emancipated. For having been brought as captives to Italy, they were liberated by their owners, and they were not forced to violate any of their native institutions. He, there, he knew, therefore, that they have houses of prayer, and they meet together in them, particularly on the sacred Sabbaths when they receive as a body training in their ancestral philosophies. 
he knew too that they collected money for sacred purposes from their first fruits and would send them to Jerusalem by persons who would offer the sacrifices. Yet nevertheless, he neither ejected them from Rome, he did not deprive them of their Roman citizenship because they were careful to preserve their Jewish citizenship also, nor took any violent measures against their houses of prayer, nor prevented them from meeting to to receive instructions in their laws, nor opposed their offerings of first fruits. Indeed, so religiously did he respect our interests that was that was supported by well nigh his whole household that he adorned our temple through the costliness of his dedications and ordered that for all time continuous sacrifices of whole burnt offerings should be carried out every day at his own expense as a tribute to the Most High God. Yet more, in the monthly doles in his own city, when all the people, each in turn, received money or corn, he never put the Jews at a disadvantage in sharing the bounty. Even, but even if the distributions happen to come during the Sabbath, when one is not permitted to receive or give anything, or transact any part of the business of ordinary life, particularly of a lucrative kind, he ordered the dispensers to reserve for the Jews till the morrow the charity which fell to all. Therefore, everyone, everywhere, even if he was not naturally well disposed to the Jews, was afraid to engage in destroying any of our institutions, and indeed, it was the same under Tiberius. Now, that doesn't sound very much like persecution, does it? Uh The reality is, you see, the Romans valued peace. They knew They had to be tolerant. They had to be careful. And for whatever reason, they were especially careful with the Jews not to violate their religion or place demands upon them that caused them to feel shamed. This was far more than a friendly attitude. This was Roman law and policy. The Jewish community exerted substantial influence on the Roman government. It is interesting that this seems to have been something that God did for Israel even when they were in exile. Recall the favor that Nebuchadnezzar showed to many Jews by including several of them in his government, including the prophet Daniel. And then the great and special favor that Cyrus the Persian showed to Israel when he freed them from Babylon, even helping to pay to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. History reveals that there were many synagogues in Rome. At least a dozen are known by name. And by government edict, they were to be left undisturbed. In fact, they were to be protected. Now, since the Messianic community, believers, was at this time still seen as merely one of the several sects of Judaism, they too enjoyed the favor of Roman government. For now. This wasn't going to stay this way too long. So it's with this understanding of the excellent relationship that the Roman Jews enjoyed with the Roman government, again, for now, this was going to change. We see why Paul felt it was necessary to reassure the local Jewish leaders he was not a rebel. 
He wasn't here to disturb their peace. And that despite the reality that it was a certain group of Judeans who had him arrested and had put him through this ordeal that had been going on for three years, he is not in Rome to bring accusations against his own nation, his own people. No doubt the Jewish residents of Rome knew about these constant uprisings in Judea. And they did not want to be associated with it. They did not want to be counted as part of that group even though they were fellow Jews. It is also clear from Philo that the Roman emperors were enlightened enough to make distinctions between the troublemaking Jews of Jerusalem and the rest of the Jews in their empire who generally just wanted to go along to get along. Paul wanted to immediately set these Jewish leaders of Rome at ease that in no way was he part of the rebellious troublemaking group. Now it's interesting how the Jewish community has over the years sort of divided itself into the group of the zealous who will allow no interference in their Judaism at any cost versus a different group who desires to work with their Gentile neighbors and authorities to craft a compromise in order to live and coexist in peace. Today we find such a similar situation between the Jews of the Holy Land, Israel, versus the Jews of the ongoing diaspora. Most Jews in Israel today are really ready to stand, fight, and defend their nation against aggressors. Not all, but most. And they broke a little outside interference on their internal affairs. Yet the bulk of European and American Jews are like the Jews of Rome. They are mainly concerned with peace. Peace where they live. They're willing to compromise with the Gentile world to attain it. Most Jews of modern Israel will lay down their lives before giving up land for peace. Most Jews of Europe and America think land for peace is a good idea. Sounds reasonable. And they find no common ground with the militant mindset of modern Jewish zealots of the Holy Land. Rather, USA and European Jews typically do not want to be associated with, his, with Israeli Jews. They don't want to be identified as one of them. And no doubt it's because Jews of the modern diaspora want to live in peace and quiet wherever it is they choose to call home. Which side's right? Which side's the godly view? We'll finish up the book of Acts next time. <laughs>